MPB Think Radio. This is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, the show all about finding and maintaining a healthy lifestyle. I'm Dr. Debbie Miner, Professor and Vice Chair of Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and I'm thrilled today to have with me Dr. Scott Rogers, Professor and Chair of the UMMC Department of Psychiatry and Human Behavior, and Emma Willoughby joins us again. Today we're going to be talking about some of the issues relating to healthcare and our LGBT community. So please give us a call with any questions or comments that you may have by calling one 877 mpb ring That's one 672 Or send us an email at healthy at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit from MPB Think Radio. We'll be back with you right after the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The FBI is investigating a cyber breach of the Democratic National Committee's emails as Hillary Clinton's campaign manager alleges that the Russian government may have been behind the whole thing to favor Republican Donald Trump. NPR's Brian Naylor reports on the latest twist. The hacking of the DNC's emails is believed to have been carried out by two separate Russian intelligence agencies. Over the weekend, just before the Democrats' convention, the emails, which contain embarrassing information about Democratic strategy and fundraising, were released by WikiLeaks. Clinton campaign manager Robbie Mook told ABC's This Week the timing may not be a coincidence. It's troubling that some experts are now telling us that this was done by by the Russians for the purpose of helping Donald Trump. The Trump campaign has dismissed the charge. Campaign manager Paul Manafort saying there are no ties between the Trump campaign and Russian President Vladimir Putin. Brian Naylor, NPR News, Washington. At the heart of the controversy are emails released by WikiLeaks that suggest the DNC inappropriately favored Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders, fueling claims by Sanders supporters that the system was rigged against their candidate. The controversy prompted DNC Chair Debbie Wasserman Schultz to announce her intention to resign after she gavels open and close the party's national convention. She faces the possibility of more disruptions from members of the audience when she takes the stage tonight. The Syrian national who blew himself up in southern Germany and wounded 15 others reportedly pledged allegiance to Islamic State. The Bavarian interior minister told reporters today suspicions were confirmed in a video found on the bomber's cell phone. The attack took place outside a music festival. It's the latest in a series of recent attacks on German civilians, fueling public doubts about Chancellor Angela Merkel's open-door refugee policy. More than a million migrants, many escaping conflicts in Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan, were granted entry to Germany in the past year. The company Yahoo is selling its core Internet business to Verizon. NPR's Arti Shahani reports the price is $4.83 billion. Yahoo was a pioneer of the World Wide Web. Yahoo led in mail and search and online advertising. But then it fell behind. And after years of struggling to keep up, of missing the mobile revolution, the board has decided it's time to let go. What Verizon gets is all of Yahoo's content, Yahoo Sports and Finance, Tumblr, and access to Yahoo's 1 billion monthly users. What's not part of the deal is Yahoo's massive stake in the Chinese e-commerce giant Alibaba, which is by far Yahoo's most valuable asset. In a statement, current CEO Marissa Meyer says she plans to stay to see Yahoo into this next chapter. Arthi Shahani, NPR News, San Francisco. The Dow is off more than 100 points at 18,469. This is NPR News. Hundreds of law enforcement officers from across Louisiana and the U.S. are among many mourners paying final respects to a Baton Rouge police officer. 
filed quietly this morning past the black coffin holding the body of Montreal Jackson, who's the third and final Baton Rouge law enforcement officer killed in an ambush last week to be buried. Roughly 10,000 homes have been evacuated as a major fire burns north of Los Angeles. The Los Angeles County Fire Department says the fire spread across 51 square miles yesterday, and that number is expected to increase today. In addition to forcing thousands of people to leave their homes, a fire has also disrupted commuter rail service. New research finds that treating people in the early stages of Alzheimer's can reduce their medical costs. NPR's John Hamilton reports on a study from the Alzheimer's Association International Conference in Toronto. Alzheimer's drugs can't stop the disease, but they do reduce symptoms. And a study of more than 1,300 people with Alzheimer's found that patients who took these medications were less likely to wind up in the hospital. As a result, even though their pharmacy costs were higher, their overall health expenses were lower. Maria Carrillo is chief scientific officer of the Alzheimer's Association, which funded the study. She thinks the reason is that patients who got treatment for Alzheimer's also received better care for other health problems like diabetes and heart disease. It's so important to have all of that monitored because there are so many um, hospitalizations that do occur. Carrillo says patients who got drug treatment were also less likely to die. John Hamilton, NPR News. I'm Lakshmi Singh, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include LegalZoom, dedicated to providing legal help to all Americans through online services, personal customer support, and legal advice through independent attorneys. Legal help is at LegalZoom.com. Catch up on past episodes and hear any of the MPB programs you've missed on the MPB Public Radio app. Available on iTunes and Google Play. Listen live to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. Search MPB Public Radio. This is Mississippi Public Broadcasting. I'm Terry Gross. Listen to Fresh Air weekdays at 3 on MPB Think Radio. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to healthy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. This is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, the show all about finding and maintaining a healthy lifestyle. I'm Debbie Miner, and I'm here today with Emma Willoughby. Again, Emma's joining us again this week, and Dr. Scott Rogers, professor and chair of the University of Mississippi Medical Center Department of Psychiatry and Human Behavior. So we had one of his one of his faculty members last week, mm-hmm. and we appreciated talking with Dr. Elkins last week. And so today, uh, I had heard an interview on on. MPB with you, Dr. Rogers. I guess it's, now it's been a couple of months ago, maybe. Mm-hmm. And it was such an intriguing discussion, and it brought it brought up 
issues related to health care and dealing with the LGBT community and a new clinic that was opening mm-hmm. on our campus. And I was so excited to hear about that. Of course, the yeah. first thing I did was I picked up my phone and or maybe emailed. I don't remember. But my dear friend, Dr. Leandro Mena, in yes. our our department in infectious disease, I said, now, do you know this person? And are you working with him? Because I'm always looking at him, <laughs> making sure he's taken care of. And he said, of course, of course. And so today we're going we're to be talking about some of those issues related to um, health care and how things to consider, how it may be different or is it all the same, but things that we should consider. And I'll just, I'll preface it going back to Dr. Mina in a partnership with my brother's keeper and several other collaborative groups. I remember a couple of years ago uh, that the open arms clinic opened in my old pediatrician's office, as a matter of fact, from 30 something years ago. And I remember going to the open house there and they thought that that clinic was just going to, it was just a a slow thing that was going to happen. It was going to be a slow, I remember they were talking about different payer source licenses and, you know, billing and those kinds of things. So like, well, we're just going to take that as the clinic develops, as it, as it gains a reputation, as People come to the clinic, and then lo and behold, I mean, it took off. It took off, and I had the, I've had the chance to talk to Dr. Mina about that over the years, and uh, some of the reasons for that were were things I don't even think that they predicted, and it was it was really fascinating to me, and we'll we'll talk about some on the show today. But welcome, welcome, and tell us a little bit about your background, guys. You're not from Mississippi. I'm not. No, I'm. I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia, but I've lived in lots of different places. So um, I was in college in North Carolina at Mm -hmm. Duke University and then um, went to uh, Vanderbilt for medical school. I was a sixth grade science teacher for a few years and a swim coach between medical school and college and then did all of my residency and fellowship training in Boston at Mass General and McLean Hospital and then returned to um, uh, Vanderbilt for my first real job out of um, uh, residency training, and I stayed there on the faculty for 15 years and served for 10 years as the as the dean of students in the medical school. And then uh, a year and a half ago, moved to Mississippi um, to become the chair of the department here. Well, that tells me a couple things about you. Uh, since I kind of helped with some recruitment in our department, it tells me they really liked you at Vanderbilt in the first place, I and they wanted you to come back. <laughs> and then it tells me that uh, they really liked you being there because in that role, because that's a demanding role in in mm-hmm. that education leadership in a in an academic facility. That could be a very very demanding role. Oh, it was, I think, the best job on campus. Actually, mm-hmm. being the dean of students, you had this wonderful opportunity to work with all of these bright, young, enthusiastic, idealistic people who, you know, wanted to make a difference in through their work as physicians. And I, I, I think I, I constantly felt honored mm-hmm. to be in such a job. Um, I never saw it as a hardship at all. And in fact, it was, it was uh, painful for me to leave a job that was that good. Um, but for uh, a variety of reasons, I decided to make the move and come to Mississippi after well, 10 years. Well, so that's, that's, you make it sound very enticing. So, yeah. so what were some of the things that that led you to make that decision to come to Mississippi? Well, I had um, there are personal and professional reasons. Personally, my um, significant other lived here, and we wanted to live in the same city. We were doing a long distance relationship for several years, and we wanted to live in the same place. And that would either be Nashville or Jackson. So we were looking in both cities, 
And then professionally, I, I, I met um, Jimmy Keaton mm-hmm. and then Luann Woodward mm-hmm. and some of the other leaders at the University of Mississippi. And I was just very intrigued by all of the wonderful things that were happening here. And I um, uh, saw this as a, you know, a group of people, a group of leaders that were truly committed to their mission. And, um, and I, I found that mission to be you know, very clear. It was all about improving the health of, of Mississippians. My family on my mom's side is actually originally from Mississippi. Oh, really? And where so where in, in Mississippi? Well, my middle name is McLaurin, and oh, okay. there's McLaurin, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And so they're from Collins and McLaurin, and, and they, they all moved to Georgia um, before I was born but, um, and, and settled in Valdosta, which is in South Georgia, and then moved up to Atlanta, which is where I was born. Um, but we would we would come to Mississippi on an annual basis to visit relatives and just look around the state because my you know family wanted me to stay connected and to our roots and so for me this is in a, in a way kind of um, um, uh, circling back if you will to uh, you know a time in my family's history and living here is exciting for me but especially I think what what it, what excites me more than anything else about about being in Mississippi in a leadership role like this is that I get to work with all of the great people on our campus to help do important things for for the state, and um, and that's something I've always sought in in any job that I take. I want to I want to feel like whatever I'm doing is meaningful and important, and that it makes a difference. Well, we we do have great opportunities in Mississippi. Yes, most definitely. And if it's you, a beautiful place. It is a beautiful place. I have never wanted to move from here. I no. love it, and I love, I love Mississippi. It too. Very proud of our state. Well, so uh, in in reference to this new clinic, yes. so we've seen we've seen some promotional things about that, mm-hmm. and and it's now operational, right? It is. It is compared to Dr. Mina's clinic, Open mm-hmm. Arms. Um, it's small. So compared to that, and our focus is entirely on mental health. So we're not doing anything related to the rest of of healthcare within the LGBT population. So our focus is entirely on mental health. And we have collaborated with him and and reached out to him to offer his clinic um, assistance. And so sometimes we'll refer patients back and forth. And Dr. Mina and I meet on a regular basis to talk about joint projects and collaborations. So, but we're small compared to him. So we meet um, at the at the Jackson Medical Mall on Wednesday mm-hmm. mornings, mm-hmm. and so how is that? Is that uh, how how would someone come to that clinic? Is it a referral type clinic? It's a referral or- clinic. Just we have our our outpatient program is based at the Jackson Medical Mall, and so we um, we take we see patients there Monday through Friday, and um, we we've designed it so that it's behavioral health specialty clinic. So each half day, Monday morning, Monday afternoon, et cetera, throughout the week is devoted to a certain topic. We do mood and anxiety disorders one day. We'll mm-hmm. do psychotic disorders. We'll work with people with head injuries on a different day. Mm-hmm. We do addictions. And so we, we um, spread it out over the course of the week. And part of that is just to, to provide patients with highly specialized care. The other part of it, though, is that we are working hard to train our medical students and our residents to um, uh, understand all of these diag- diagnoses in their complexity and to understand the management, the treatment of, of each condition. And I think you, you gain something by having specialized care over just you know, generalized care throughout the entire week. So, so we've arranged it that way. So each half day has its own topic. So Wednesday morning is our LGBT clinic. Okay. So it, why, what would be different about that? Or are there issues that are different? Well, yeah. So if you if you um, 
if you look at some of the research uh, related to the LGBT community, what you find, in, at least in the area of mental health, is that there are higher rates of some of the more common conditions that we talk about, such as depression. Um, it's it's uh, higher. It's higher for uh, a lot of the anxiety disorders. Higher for substance use disorders, and people, you know, often talk about alcoholism. Mm-hmm. That's one, but also other drugs of abuse. It's higher. We see higher rates of uh, um, suicidal ideation or thinking about suicide, attempted suicide, and completed suicides. Mm. Um, So it's a population that is considered at risk for some of these conditions, and there are a variety of reasons for that. Um, So there's a need, I think, for um, some leadership in this area to, to do something to reach out to the community and be helpful, and that's what we're trying to do. Well, uh, so today we're here with Dr. Scott Rogers from University of Mississippi Medical Center. Dr. Rogers is chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Human Behavior, and we're talking about some of the uh, the issues related to healthcare in the LGBT community. Uh, I, I want to go back and maybe maybe introduce this as far as like cultural competency. Uh, I know that in in some discussions I've had with uh, some people, there was it, it was brought up that, for example, in a clinic, uh, that a a patient did not feel did not feel comfortable mm-hmm. comfortable talking about specific issues related to their health because of their sexual orientation. Now, I deal with things like this all the time, where. I'll talk to a patient and they didn't feel comfortable telling the doctor Mm -hmm. that they weren't taking their cholesterol medicine. I'm like, why didn't you tell them? Because now they've given you a prescription for a higher dose. Well, I just didn't feel comfortable telling them they were going to be so disappointed in me. And I didn't want to tell them I couldn't afford that. And so, I mean, you know, you deal with Mm -hmm. on, on different levels, you deal with things like that all of the time where whatever, whatever for an individual, their mindset, but, whether it's whether it's health literacy, whether it's cultural competency, whether it's mm-hmm. cultural sensitivity or awareness, there it seems like a whole nother set of issues. Is that, is that am I off or is that no. true? <laughs> no, you're exactly right. You know, it's a, sexuality is just an, you know a, a very um, private part of a person's life, and I think that many of the in in this area that we're talking about today with LGBT health, um, this is an area where. A lot of the the people, if not all of them, grow up um, facing potential victimization every day. There's there's you know very high rates of bullying, for example, in in schools. Um, and we're not talking only about Mississippi. This is across the country. This oh, is this yeah. is around the that, world. We've seen that recently. This hmm. is everywhere you go. So it is it is a it is a major concern. And so there is a a, a tendency in this community to conceal identity. Um, uh, and, and, and not disclose unless you feel comfortable doing so. And, and so, you know, often the, if we're, if we're talking about physicians, physicians are not, um, um, uh, homophobic or transphobic, but, but there is a a fear that they, that they potentially would be. And Mm -hmm. so there, you know, a lot of the patients will just not talk about it Mm -hmm. at all. Um, because of that fear, they fear being judged, they fear the, the shame and all of that. Now i I have found lately the community is becoming stronger um, and is feeling a little more empowered and and is coming out more. So when that happens, when people come out to their family members and friends and all that, if they 
if they're supported, you know, that makes a huge difference. But um, unfortunately, that's not always the case for many people. They come out to family and friends and they can be rejected. And so it can be a very lonely place. Um, and, and so people live often in fear and they conceal who they are, which mm. is not healthy. Mm. Well, let's go to uh, caller on the line. Good morning, Frank. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing fine. I'm really enjoying this conversation. Well, thank you. Uh, editorial comment. The doctor sounds a little young to be head of a department, but I'll let that go. He's kind of bald. <laughs> does not imply you. I know. I know. <laughs> uh, your funding. You know, we've had a lot of past budget cuts and current budget cuts and future budget cuts from state funding. How does your program fit in that, or do you get a large enough percentage of federal funding to uh, see at least a bright future in the next two or three years? Uh, thanks, Frank, question, for the Frank. question. So we we treat the um, – and thanks for the comment about my youthful voice. <laughs> I'll take that whenever I can get it. Um, but I, I wanted to uh, – I'll, I'll just say that in terms of funding, we, we treat this clinic like any other clinic, so it's a – you know, you, you patients have insurance, and we bill the insurance company, and we just do the billing like everything else. So there's not a special fund set aside uh, for the clinic on Wednesday mornings. Well, okay, in general, well, then how is you MMC looking with the budget cuts? I'm sorry? So how is the hospital looking? You're at UMMC, right? Yes. Right. So that's that state funding. How does UMMC look with the budget cuts that we're talking about? Oh, that's probably beyond me. Um, uh, that's probably that, that's above my pay grade. I'm not sure. <laughs> Definitely above my pay grade. <laughs> We're trying, we just try to do everything we can to um, um, provide excellent care and also pay for our services through appropriate billing um, of our patients. So we, we are, um, our, our emphasis in everything we do is always on quality. Um, and uh, uh, when we can get, you know, there are opportunities at times to get grants for some of the work that we do, and we seek those out. Um, but currently, we're not funded by any external grant. Great. Well, uh, that's good. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thank Frank. you. Thank you for calling. So, in your clinic, do you see adolescents? We do. I'm a board certified in both adult and in child psychiatry, so I can see any any age. So it seems like that some of the issues that that you had mentioned uh, that definitely are very complex, Mm -hmm. it seems like a lot of those often surface in adolescence. They do, and even younger than that, they surface Mm -hmm. sometimes in children, too. So, yes, we're open to patients of all ages, um, but... Um, it, I think with uh, with adolescents, with children, you know, often it's the family who's bringing the the child or the adolescent to us, rather than you know a self referral. Mm-hmm. So we're we're often working with families, and the families we've seen thus far in our clinic are concerned mostly about the well being of their child. They want to protect the child from harm. They're concerned about the the school environment, the social environment, bullying, victimization, something we were talking about before, and so they're. Um, they're there trying to get advice from us, trying to get some assistance. Um, one of the things that I think is very important to, to mention is that our clinic provides a, a very affirming in, environment. So in no way do we 
judge our patients for their sexual orientation or their gender identity. We we wanted this clinic to be a place that is considered safe by the community. And so people can come and they can ask questions and they can we can engage in dialogue and talk about these things in a in a supportive way. Um hopefully a, a way that's also um, evidence-based um, mm-hmm. always. So we're providing people with, with good information um, that they can then use as they wish. So uh, if you think about, so we're talking about this is based in psychiatry, right? Mm-hmm. But then you work, you, we mentioned open arms and yes. referrals back and forth, but are there other clinics at UMC that you work with extensively? Like, no. I was thinking of the ad- I'm thinking about the adolescent group as oh yes so there there are people in the Department of Pediatrics mm-hmm. with an interest in this topic and we have worked with them and so that's great to see and there there is there is a um, a burgeoning interest across the the medical center in in doing something to to help the community I'm finding that now um, having been here a year and a half so the, I would say there are a handful of maybe five or six physicians that would like to do something important and meaningful. Good, and good. that that includes pediatrics and adolescent medicine. I think that um, obviously this is there's a there's a tremendous need, tremendous need, and we don't fully we don't we're healthcare providers aren't trained. Like I know healthcare providers aren't adequately trained in most disciplines mm-hmm. on how to appropriately talk to people about healthy eating. <laughs> and yes. a healthy weight. Right. Most of them don't bring it up at all. I mean, we've done, right. we've seen studies nationwide and even in our groups that, and so we're trying, we've changed mm-hmm. some of our curriculum and uh, in associated with preventive medicine and other groups to where we try to do a better job of, of training our healthcare providers to talk to people about healthy behaviors, eating, physical activity and all that, because sure. they didn't feel like they even had the knowledge background because they, they're so wonderful getting that physiology mm-hmm. and pathology and all that, but these just what would be intuitive, we think, very, very just simple things to address, sometimes they're not comfortable with, and so they avoid it. So are there are there programs in place to train healthcare providers? That's, that's part of why we're at the Jackson Medical Mall rather than just a standalone uh, private clinic. Mm-hmm. We, are, we, are, um, we invite medical students now. All of our medical students rotate through this clinic. All of them. All of them. Okay. So 100% of them will come through. It's a requirement. So mm-hmm. they, they go to the behavioral health specialty clinics at the Jackson Medical Mall for a week in their four-week clerkship rotation. Mm-hmm. So we see all the students over the course of an entire week. They get to see all of these topics, not mm-hmm. just LGBT, mm-hmm. but everything yeah. we do. So And that, that um, wasn't the case two years ago. So we've introduced this just recently because Wonderful. we wanted to give the students exposure. Um, and then the residents rotate through as well. So the residents um, can work with me if they wish. They can work a lot or a little, depending on their interest. Um, they can come and, and do a little bit of this too. So that's what we're trying to do. And then if other you know physicians at the attending level or from other departments would like to participate, we, we have had um, people from across UMMC come to us and say, hey, I'd like to come for the, you know, the summer months or something, or I've got two weeks here, can we come by and do some shadowing or see what you're doing in the clinic? And we, we allow that. We've been very open um, for anybody who'd like to come and work with us. Nursing, you know, there, there are lots of different areas. And what about community? Do you have any community education projects? Um, not Are there yet. events? We, we do a lot. I mean, like this is an example, mm-hmm. I would say, of a community education mm-hmm, project. You know, coming mm-hmm. on MPB mm-hmm. like this, we're very honored to be here. But I think that um, we, we don't 
we're we're just so new mm-hmm. at this point that we haven't um, developed the educational programming that I think would be needed to really do something important in the community. But that's the direction we're going. So we have plans to um, um, put together a, a, um, an organized approach through a center for LGBT health. And I'm working with Dr. Mina on that now. Mm-hmm. And and that requires some effort on our behalf. But we feel that it's important to do that because otherwise we just have lots of different people across the campus and throughout the community trying to do things all good, but it's not coordinated. Mm-hmm. We feel like if we can come together and coordinate that we'll have a better product, something we can really be proud of, and that will endure. So let's back up a minute. So when we talk about... Uh the LGBT community, what percent of the population are we talking about? Well, it depends on the study you, you look at, but, but typically people uh, estimate it's between 5 and 10%. 10% is probably on the high end of that. It's probably closer to 5 but it depends on the study. Emma? <laughs> you were looking at me like you had a question. <laughs> no, <laughs> chime in. No. So we're here today. We're talking with Dr. Scott Rogers, professor and chair of the UMMC Department of Psychiatry and Human Behavior, and we're talking about some of the the issues related to care of the LGBT population and a new clinic that we have on campus. So you hear our music. That means we need to take a quick break. We'll be back with you right after this break. Support for MPB comes from Grammy Museum Mississippi, offering free admission and a pass to a world of intimate performances, lectures, and events for members. Information on planning a visit or becoming a member at grammymuseumms.org. This week, Democrats will meet in Philadelphia to nominate Hillary Clinton for president. NPR and PBS NewsHour will be there, too. We're teaming up to bring you live coverage each night of the convention. I'm Rachel Martin. Join me, Judy Woodruff, and Gwen Eiffel as we take you inside the arena and to the floor of the Democratic National Convention. It's special coverage from PBS NewsHour and NPR News. Tonight at 7 on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to healthy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting.
Good morning from MPB Think Radio. This is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm Debbie Miner. I'm here today with Dr. Scott Rogers from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Dr. Rogers is the chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Human Behavior. And Emma Willoughby is back with us, and we're going to ask for Emma's insight in a minute. But uh, we've talked about a new clinic that UMC has, and it's a it's a partnership and a collaboration. And Dr. Rogers has explained some of the the, the long-term goals, the long-term goals of ensuring how we address and care for uh, this particular population. So we've, we've said LGBT population. So yes. I am, let's make sure our, our audience understands what that means. And also, mm-hmm. I'm going to say this, too, because my husband and I just had this, he was just horrified because he said, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, that's terrible, but he saw somewhere LGBTQ. Yes. Okay, well, you know, okay, my husband is 60. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know what he thought Q stood for? I don't want to say it. Queer. It does. Okay, well, well, then, then I said, <laughs> he said, that is the most demeaning, that is terrible. He said, I cannot believe yeah. in this day and age. And then he decided, he looked up something and he decided it stood for questioning. It does as okay. well. Okay, but he was horrified that someone would use that terminology in this day and age. Yeah. I can explain that. Okay, you explain. <laughs> you explain it because we had this little family discussion. <laughs> okay, great. It it is a it is it is a negative term. Um, but the, so I guess we'll start with L. So LGBTQ L, L stands for lesbian. B is bisexual, and uh, G is gay. And the first three letters relate to sexual orientation, and that is, of course. You know, just your your attraction. You're attracted to people of your own sex or people of an opposite sex. So you're homosexual versus heterosexual. So the LGBT relate to that. T stands for transgender, and that's something different. That relates to gender identity. Gender identity is a person's psychological sense of being male or female. And um, most of us... Um, have a um, uh, a sense of our gender by the age of three or four, so it it happens actually fairly early. Um, and for you know for the majority of people, their gender identity aligns with their biological sex, but for the the transgender population, it 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 doesn't. And so you have a gender identity that is different from your biological sex. Q stands for queer or questioning. Um, and the word queer it is a negative term, obviously, and it's not something you want to go around saying. But um, sometimes in in minority groups, what happens is that you take what was formerly a very negative word and you use Mm -hmm. it as a word of empowerment. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what happened in the LGBTQ community. So you'll see, you know, I think there was a, what was that famous show? Was it on HBO or something called Queer as Folk or it was Showtime, Emma? Yeah, yeah. What was that? (laughs) I don't know. Remember that? I mean, that's dating me. That was, that was 20 (laughs) years ago now, but, or, or thereabouts, but Mm. Yeah, so sometimes you'll see that. Um, you'll see newspapers with the word queer in it and such such as that. And then the other que- cue is questioning, which is mm-hmm. you know where people are not sure. They're not sure of their sexual orientation or their gender identity, so they use that letter, questioning, cue for questioning. Okay, so you mentioned with, with uh, that most children, well, not most, but children start having, being, become more of aware of identity around mm-hmm. age three mm-hmm. or so. Right. And then so at what point, does it become apparent or maybe it's yeah. not it, maybe it's not always apparent but what is there a certain age that that's usually more clearly defined for for, uh, for we're talking about the transgender community mm-hmm. now so mm-hmm. this is different so for for the transgender community what what you see sometimes in in young people is that 
They'll um, make statements about their gender to the parents that uh, may be at odds with, with the parents' understanding. So a little boy, for example, might say to his mom or his dad or both, may say something like, Mommy, Daddy, I am a girl. And um, that you know, creates a moment of panic sort of in the parents because they, they really hadn't considered anything like that. And they begin wondering, you know, is my child potentially transgender? Um, the, the behavior sometimes can tip you off too. So if you see behavior that is gender um, um, atypical behavior, so like a little boy who's very interested in, in uh, uh, girl toys or, or girl behaviors, may be an indicator, but even that is is uh, well, so, something so you that, have to worry about. When you say question. girl behaviors and all, so it, sometimes you think that's more cultural. It is cultural. It is cultural. But that, we see um, heterosexual boys are tend to be a lot more interested in like rough and tumble play, mm-hmm. for example, and heterosexual girls tend to be more interested. And this, of course, there are exceptions to this. You can't apply one rule to all human beings. So there are people who are gender atypical in lots of ways, maybe heterosexual, but very gender atypical in certain ways. So you see girls who are tomboys. That's a great example of that. Not all those girls necessarily grow up to be gay or lesbian. They they can be heterosexual, but you can see that kind of behavior. But when you're looking at um, behavior, if you have a little boy who's presenting with some gender atypical behavior and makes statements like, Mommy, I am a girl, then you begin to wonder. You know, That's when you, you begin to say, well, maybe, maybe. We're um, talking about uh, something related to transgender identity. Um, when that happens, the thing to do is not to immediately change the way you parent mm-hmm. the child. The thing to do, in, in my opinion, is to bring your child to a professional, maybe a pediatrician or maybe um, a clinic like ours where you can get an, you know, some expert help. Often the help is just following the child over time. It isn't about making an immediate decision about how you parent the child. Sometimes it's just waiting and, and watching, you know, and that's the that's the intelligent approach to take rather than jumping to conclusions yeah. because it is very young. I mean, that's oh, yes. very early. And as we know, kids change, and sometimes what they say is different a year or two years down the road. And so it's – it's um, you don't you don't make draw conclusions immediately from one statement like that. That can be based on a lot of things. So I would encourage – Families, when you're facing this, to you know, um, go to a go to a clinic that can help you. Maybe it's um, a Department of Pediatrics, or maybe it's coming to our clinic, for example. Well, and and so change, I think change your parenting style. I mean, to me, the the goal would be that you would be a supportive parent, yeah. and with time, seeing where where that support needs to be. Exactly, exactly. But but so one of the questions parents will ask us though in the clinic is. Should I begin referring to my child using female pronouns? Mm, okay. Should I allow him to wear girl clothes, mm-hmm. which is what he wants to do? Mm-hmm. With you the, know, with transgender, right? With transgender, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Those are the kinds of questions. That's what I'm referring to, and mm-hmm. I talk about in mm-hmm. in in all cases of parenting, regardless of your child's sexual orientation or gender identity. What we what we all hope for and encourage, of course, is support across the board. You know, without exception. So you support your child. Um, and and unconditionally, um, but but there are these very specific questions that parents have about well exactly how do I, you know what pronouns should I use? Mm-hmm. What behavior should I encourage? Discourage? What you know? How do we deal with the school environment with this? Parents are afraid of 
what the school how the school will react, how other kids will react, you know, if they allow the child to do what the child wants to do. So these are the things, these are the real issues that we deal with on a, you know, on a weekly basis in our clinic. I was just going to add Dr. Rogers something you were saying earlier um about I think you were talking about different countries or different norms everywhere. It made me think about something from my anthropology class in undergrad, but I think there's a number of different societies either in South America or in the Pacific or something where there's like mm-hmm. a third sex or a third gender. It's men mm-hmm. who live as women and that's or the other way around. I, I can't remember. Um, but I think it is really interesting to, to think about the fluidity depending mm-hmm. on where you go and different people. Um, there's not just a this or that. And right. I think it's really great that you have a clinic that's so open to people who, you know, lots of different spectrums and different places. But I think it's important to remember that you know, there are different norms everywhere. Um, and we yeah. just, very it, much it, so. it, you have mm-hmm. this, you know, this really interesting place where y- you have to help the parents deal with these issues, you know, mm-hmm. deal with all these issues in a certain context, you know, in the U.S. where there's a lot of pressures. Um, mm-hmm. Well, and I guess, too, by us sitting here saying these things, the people probably that end up in your clinic are the supportive parents. Not always. Okay. Most of the time. Not always, Uh though. Sometimes the parents are, you know, they have their own beliefs, their own belief system, and it may be based in in just their their background. It may be based in religion. It can Mm -hmm. be based in a lot of different things. But they're they're just worried because they, they want to do the right thing, and they're just not really sure what that is. How do they reconcile what their child is saying and what maybe their parental instincts suggest with what they're taught? And what they were brought up to believe. And I think parents come sometimes to us struggling to reconcile those differences and, and needing some assistance from us and so, and, or from others, you know, friends, family members, maybe their church. Mm-hmm. You know, how do, how, do I, how do I manage this? Mm. That can be very difficult. It's very, very difficult. Very difficult. Yeah, we have long conversations. And mm-hmm. so do you – I'm not going to ask how old you are because I'm sitting here looking at you, and I, I know that you are older than than you sound, <laughs> like according to Frank. But have you seen changes? Have you seen changes? Think back from even when you were in college and when you went to medical school. Have you seen changes yeah. over the years? In, in, in society's in society, ability to accept? Uh-huh, and, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, no doubt. No doubt. Um, it it – it is very different today from, say, 25 years ago. When I, I think when I first began thinking about this was probably during my residency training. I was living in Boston at the time. And so this is a, it's very interesting. If you've lived in various places around the country, you know, different cities are, have just different approaches to this. And Boston is, is a place that tends to be very affirming mm-hmm. of the LGBT community. And, you know, it's it's you, you almost never hear people up there speaking in homophobic ways or transphobic ways. It's very very affirming, and uh, and so that was my first real exposure, if you will, to working with patients. And patients there were very open and very honest about their you know who they were and what they believed in and all of that. And so it was it was a, just a different experience. But I'm from the South. I didn't want to live in Boston my whole life. I wanted to come back and. Uh, live in the South, and so, um, but the South is just different, and it's it's true in Georgia. I've lived in Tennessee, it's Mississippi, it's you know, it's just a different place. Here, I would say it's a little bit harder for people to be open and honest related to their LGBT status. 
Um, so um, they need a, you know, it's taking a little more time, but you definitely feel the the motion forward for people. It's kind of a like two steps forward, one step back phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that we go through that with, with just all kinds of things. And even, and I mean, it's, it's even bigger too, because you mentioned that this clinic is, is related to not just the overall health care, but the mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's such a still ongoing stigma uh, associated with different types of mental illnesses too. Mm-hmm. And so right. that, that further for that the, adds another, yeah, makes yeah. it, we need to, worse. I mean, this is a, a different topic, but it related to mental illness. I mean, the thing, the thing about that is we, we need to work harder to reduce that stigma um, because we view in, in my department, we view mental illness just as anyone else would view, say, um, uh, an illness like diabetes or asthma. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these illnesses are chronic. Today, um, we have approaches that work. We have uh, treatments that work and can you know, greatly improve a person's overall sense of well-being. Um, and it doesn't take forever to get there. Sometimes it can be a matter of days, sometimes a few weeks, and we can have people feeling and functioning at a, at a much higher level. And so I think the, you know, when there is a stigma, though, that is, what, that is the problem often. That's what prevents people from coming in to get the help that they need. Mm-hmm. And what bothers you so much as a practitioner of psychiatry is when you see someone coming in who says, I've been struggling for 10 years with this, you know, and I've lost my job and I didn't mm-hmm. go as far as I wanted to go in school. And, mm-hmm. you know, I now I can't pay my bills and I have all this debt. And you realize that this person had suffered unnecessarily for a decade of, of his or her life and that we could have done something. And, and it, you know, it allows a person to take a very different path in life. And we see that all the time, all the time. Well, so people it, used to be afraid of losing their jobs. Yes. And now is it pretty much across the board that is it can you not exclude mental illness now? So that's it that's just, that's where we're headed now. That's where we're headed. But uh, you know, a lot of that really does depend on the employer. Um but it's it's um it 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 is something that you're right. People worry about that. Mm-hmm. They worry about what their employer will say. Mm-hmm. How how their employer will react. But of course that's a that's a problem. That's a problem because um, there's reason to believe sometimes that people who've suffered with, for example, depression might actually be more – there's even research to support this, that they might actually even be more compassionate as a psychiatrist or as a, a pediatrician or whatever. Because, they're more sensitive. Because they're more sensitive mm. and they, they've been there. They understand it. So in fact, rather than excluding you from practicing, it might be something that would enhance your overall effectiveness with a patient. So we, we're not thinking correctly about mental health, mental illness. Um, mental illness is manageable. It's something that can be dealt with, um, and there's, very, there's every reason to be hopeful. So I would say for any of your listeners out there today, um, goodness, take control. Don't suffer unnecessarily. Come in and you know, be seen. We're, we're working very hard at the university to create um, programs that that work to help the people of Mississippi. Our focus is solely on Mississippi right now, and we want to do something here um, to to affect change. Well, so that brings up a a point. Some people don't know the right place to start. Yes. The right place to start. And so in primary care, we think of Mm -hmm. always screening for depression, screening for depression. You know, I can't say we're 
everyone always does a great job with that because there's so many other issues that you have to deal with too. Mm -hmm. But uh, where should someone start? So is it with a psychologist? Uh, Is it what, what are, what are resources available and where, where should people start? And I mean, any more complicated, I mean, how do you know when you're at that point where you need help from a professional? Mm -hmm. So the, you know, mental illness is, is, is really defined. I mean, of course there are lots of different diagnoses, lots of different types of illness, but it's, it's defined mostly by a person's inability to function. It's when your anxiety or your depression, if we're using those two examples, very common problems, impair your ability to function so that you can't work, you can't take care of your family, you can't do the things that you would normally do. So we're looking for that. We're looking for that level of impairment. So if you are suffering to that degree, there's probably some, that's probably a reason for you to get some help. Now, you just mentioned... Um, I threw a lot in there. <laughs> no, you just mentioned, though, the, the group of people who pr- provides the most care. In Mississippi, primary care physicians mm-hmm. are, stand on the front lines of care mm-hmm. for uh, these patients. Um, and part of that is because they, you know, patients are a little more comfortable going to their primary care physician than they would be going to a psychiatrist because of the stigma yes. problem. Mm-hmm. But the, the other part of that is that Mississippi has a shortage of psychiatrists. There are fewer than, for example, fewer than 10 board-certified child and adolescent psychiatrists in the entire state who are Mm -hmm. practicing today, who are practicing. Now, there are probably more than that who have the certification, but I'm talking about practicing, seeing patients fewer than 10 in a, in a state of, you know, three, roughly 3 million people. So it's, we're, we're very under, understaffed. We have a a pretty, I would say, severe shortage of psychiatrists to take care of the people living here in the state, um, and so by necessity, a lot of our patients go to the primary care mm-hmm. physician. Now, a primary care physician is, is certainly capable of managing a lot of these illnesses, but where they get in trouble and where they reach out to us is when it becomes a little complex. If it gets difficult, like yes. maybe the antidepressant doesn't work or mm-hmm. the therapy doesn't work or something, well, where do I go next? So um, often the first, if you're using a medication to treat a problem, the first medication you use is not necessarily the one that will work. And you have to really know what you're doing. And so we get a lot of referrals from primary care physicians to our clinic. And then we step in and help manage them. And we'll work collaborative, co- collaboratively with people across the state mm. in an as-needed way. Mm. <laughs> and there's so many different, uh, I, I guess, well, of course, psychiatrists can prescribe medicines mm. and, and have that additional medical training versus psychologists. Yes. Uh, but... Uh, I, it seems like in most in most groups I've seen that psychologists and psychiatrists work together. They do, and in, uh, in in patient management, and then there there are different groups that uh, one we pass by on the way here. That's a wonderful group that we refer a lot of patients to, and yeah. uh, for the the psychological the, for the the psychologist right. there too. So that can be a right. a, a resource too. We bring psychologists into our outpatient programming. So, and we have we also have psychologists working in our inpatient programming at, at the university. So, we we're strong believers in in psychology and and in the work that they do. Um, and their approaches are, are evidence based approaches. Mm-hmm. So, they're doing usually cognitive, cognitive. behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. right? Which is which is evidence based research supports it shows that it works. And so, they tailor the approach. We what we try to do with each and every patient is to tailor the approach to that individual. And it may or may not include medication. It may or may not include psychotherapy. 
Oh, goodness. It can be so complex. So complex. So Emma brought up a great point about uh, looking at different areas and studying something in, did you say, anthropology or yeah, sociology it was, it was or something? In, I remember it was in an anthropology class a little while ago. Yeah. Um, in different cultures mm-hmm. and the way that they address things. And you brought up that the South is a little bit different. So uh, as we as we move forward, uh, you know, it can be striking sometimes, too. Mm-hmm. I've spent a pretty good amount of time in D.C. Mm-hmm. And when I go to D.C., it's just so different than Mississippi. It's so different. Mm-hmm. It's so different than Mississippi. So in I guess as we go forward, uh, and particularly in mental health, I, and it seems like it was the Dallas police chief that, that mm-hmm. said this about the lack of resources and how policemen mm-hmm. a lot of times are having to deal with mental health issues. Right. And that I, I think maybe was where Frank was going to with his question about mm-hmm. budget cuts and all that. As we go forward, do you feel like that we will have more resources? Now, like insurance coverage has increased and oh. over years for mental health um, related issues. But do you feel like we'll have more resources available Oh, my, my sense, if you mean in Mississippi specifically, my sense is that the, the, the um, um, people working um, uh, in politics, the, the, the politicians are actually very much in favor of doing something to mm-hmm. help in this area. So I've seen that on both sides. I think there is bipartisan support just from what I've read. Mm-hmm. I haven't met a lot of the people, but mm-hmm. I read good things about what people are saying and what they're doing um, to try to be helpful. What people are looking for really is a solution, um, and that isn't easy to come by. You have to, you know, you really need leadership um, to do that. But I, my sense is that we are, we are as a state, um, uh, ready for that level of change. And I don't think there's there's any. I mean, I'm just not sensing opposition to um, making some positive changes here. I, I have a sense that that Mississippi is ready to move in a very good direction. In this way, that's encouraging. Mm-hmm. We we are a very very loving state. Well, very I was saying, I mean, state just and, just so I, I don't want to be misunderstood when I was comparing like Boston to yeah, Jackson. No, I think that mm-hmm. the you know here what I notice on the on the uh, you know on the positive side is that families are are so strong here and communities are very very mm-hmm. strong and people support one another in in ways that you don't often see when you go to other places in the country. So I, I have a um a, a, a you know a good group of friends already and I've not even been here 2 years and and that says something about Mississippi's hospitality That's and right. kindness and and compassion. We care. Yeah, you we do. We care. Mm-hmm. We care and we give. Good. <laughs> 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 and so I think that's the difference. And, and you think of some of these other, like Boston, for example. Everybody just kind of goes their own, does their own thing. Yes. And so it's not, it's not a matter. It's, it's because now everyone's not as engaged. We're mm-hmm. all engaged. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everybody's mm-hmm. engaged in each other's lives, and yeah. and we have such a strong, strong, strong sense of community mm-hmm. and taking care of each other. Yeah, that's evident to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I, I, I did want to go back to, uh, in now I'm. I'm kind of going all over the place, but back with kids real quick. And so you do take care of younger children. It sounds like when we're talking about support, in some cases it's mainly supportive for the parents mm-hmm. too. It is. But you do younger children too? We do. Okay. So do. children and adolescents. Right. Okay, mm-hmm. wonderful. So we've had some of our pediatric group on before too, and we've talked about some of the the uh, issues related with that. And I think they're planning on a program coming up too, a continuing medical education program mm-hmm. coming up probably in partnership with y'all soon. Yes. 
with mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Mina and his group, and then our our pediatric adolescent group too. So, what if you had any suggestions? Any suggestions for our listeners as far as uh, someone who may be listening who has not been comfortable with their maybe their healthcare provider and uh, maybe are felt comfortable talking to their healthcare provider? Any suggestions on? How to talk to your health care provider, how to be open and honest so that you get the care because your provider needs to know everything about you to mm-hmm. be able to provide the care that you need. So any suggestions to empower people to talk to their health care provider? That's a great question. I, I, you know, I think the, the best approach probably is to just take the risk and just open up and understand that if you hopefully you're in a, in a situation where, you know, if you don't get the response that you feel you need from your provider that you have the ability to go elsewhere because it is an important part of your your who you are and your health and if you ignore it and you conceal your identity um, that that leads to problems that's one of the reasons why we have such high rates of illness in this group so i would say search find someone that can uh, with whom you can be honest and open um, and and don't stop until you found that person. And if you need assistance from us, we're happy to help with that. Um, we are, of course, a lot more aware of mental health resources than mm-hmm. we are other resources, but, but we're happy to help at the university level. Um, we do have people who come from all over the state. So how, um, would, they find, how would they find your clinic? Well, Is there a number you would call? There's a number you would call, and if you just go to our, our department's website, Department of Psychiatry at the University of Mississippi, there's a there's a, an outpatient referral um, process there. It's, it's described, and there's a phone number to call, and you just call. So simple as that. Set it up. Simple yeah. as that. So, so they don't have to have an outside referral to come in then? No. Okay. They can self-refer, or they can be referred. Mm-hmm. Great, great. Mm-hmm. So we thank you for thank joining you. us today. We really appreciate it. Dr. Scott Rogers from UMC and Emma Willoughby. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. We're funded in a part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and by the generous support from the members of the Foundation for Public Broadcasting in Mississippi. Today's show was engineered by Jay White. Please join us next Monday at 11 for Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. And stay tuned. NPR's Think Radio is next. Underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Information on how to make good health a family affair is available at bcbsms.com. It's not going to be quite as hot as we go through this afternoon. We've got a little bit of cloud cover building in, and we're already starting to see a few thunderstorms show up 